Turn in uh, your copy of God's Word to Exodus chapter 4. Exodus 4, uh, this morning we will look just at verses 18 to 31, uh, the end, the last half of that chapter. Again, as it is our practice, uh, if you are able, uh, please stand as we read God's Word together. This is the Word of the Lord. Uh, Moses went back to Jethro, his father-in-law, and said to him, Please let me go back to my brothers in Egypt to see whether they are still alive. And Jethro said to Moses, Go in peace. And the Lord said to Moses in Midian, Go back to Egypt, for all the men who are seeking your life are dead. So Moses took his wife and his sons and had them ride on a donkey and went back to the land of Egypt. And Moses took the staff of God in his hand. The Lord said to Moses, When you go back to Egypt, see that you do before Pharaoh all the miracles that I have put in your power. But I will harden his heart so that he will not let the people go. Then you shall say to Pharaoh, Thus says the Lord, Israel is my firstborn son, and I say to you, Let my son go that he may serve me. If you refuse to let him go, behold, I will kill your firstborn son. At a lodging place on the way, the Lord met him and sought to put him to death. Then Zipporah took a flint and cut off her son's foreskin and touched Moses' feet with it and and said, Surely you are a bridegroom of blood to me. So he let him alone. It was then uh, that she said, A bridegroom of blood because of the circumcision. The Lord said to Aaron, go into the wilderness to meet Moses. So he went and met him at the mountain of God and kissed him. And Moses told Aaron all the words of the Lord with with which he had sent him to speak and all the signs that he had commanded him to do. And then Moses and Aaron went and gathered together all the elders of the people of Israel. Aaron spoke all the words that the Lord had spoken to Moses and did the signs in the sight of the people. And the people believed And when they heard that the Lord had visited the people of Israel and that he had seen their affliction, they bowed their heads and worshiped. The grass withers, the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. Let's pray together. Uh, We pray, our Heavenly Father, that you would teach us. Use your word to uh, grow us in our knowledge of and love for you and conform us more and more into the image of Christ. Deepen our gratitude for Christ and for salvation that is all of grace. We pray this in Christ's most precious name. Amen. You may be seated. Uh, I trust that uh, most of you at least are familiar with uh, the Emancipation Proclamation, uh, that statement uh, issued by uh, President Lincoln Uh, January 1st, 1863, that uh, at least in its design set free thousands and thousands and thousands of slaves across the South. Not all of them. There's some technical issues and counties exempted and all kinds of weird stuff. If you go back and read the proclamation, it's kind of odd. Um, But perhaps you're not so familiar with the fact that that was actually the third time that he announced that proclamation. He actually introduced it to his cabinet in June or July in the summer of 1862. 
And he actually, in October of 1862, issued what turns out to be a preliminary Emancipation Proclamation, which is really the exact same proclamation except with um, more of an advanced notice. Uh, it's really the exact same proclamation, but he's just simply saying, on January 1st, this is what I'm going to say. And then he says what exactly what he's going to say. And this is what will be the effect of what I say on January 1st. And it's the exact same effect of what he says on January 1st. No, nothing really changes except that he basically tells them that he's going to say this in January. This passage is, in many ways, a preliminary emancipation proclamation. He's, he's announcing to his people that there's coming a day when I'm going to announce your deliverance. Here, let me tell you about the freedom that you are going to have from slavery, from bondage, from Egypt. And then he comes back later and says, here's the freedom that you have from slavery, from bondage, from Egypt. It's essentially, uh, it's in essence, the same proclamation is just announced several months, years in advance. Israel has been a slave to Egypt now for 400 years or so. Uh, they've been crying out to God. We've, we've read along the way that God has heard their cries. He's seen their affliction. He knows what they're going through. They're looking for a deliverer. We've known for 40 years now, which really for us translates to what, three weeks, I guess. Uh, what we've known for four, 40 years that Moses is that deliverer. And yet, for the last 40 years, he's been somewhere else. And the people of Israel are still waiting for that redeemer, for that deliverer. And so in this passage this morning, Moses shows up with a preliminary uh, emancipation proclamation. A declaration of the freedom of God's people. Notice, first of all, that freedom comes at God's divine decree. Moses was in the wilderness. Uh, he's, he's tending to his father-in-law's sheep. And it's there that he met that burning bush. Moses wasn't looking for God. Moses wasn't looking for a burning bush. Moses wasn't out looking, trying to figure out where's... Hey, sheep, let's go this way because I'm pretty sure God's over here. Moses isn't out looking for God. He's not looking for him there on Mount Horeb, which is Mount Sinai, the same place. The, over and over again, so far, God has done all the initiating. God came to Moses. Moses is just being a shepherd. He looks over and sees this bush that's on fire, but not exactly on fire. But there's fire on it, but it's not getting burned up. We've, we've been down that road. And it's, it's there, it's from that bush that God calls Moses. God commissions Moses. He's the one that initiates, hey Moses, by the way, because if you remember, Moses wanted no part of this. Like Moses literally tried 
every possible objection and excuse and explanation and nuance and twist and turn. Anything he could do to convince God, ultimately, God, you're wrong. It wasn't, it wasn't Moses' idea. Over and over again, God initiates his relationship with Moses. And we see here in verse 19, God simply reiterates that command. Hey, um, the Lord said to Moses and Midian, go back to Egypt. The, all the people that, that wanted you dead are also, they, they themselves are dead. So you're safe, you can go back. And he gives Moses precise instructions. We've seen these instructions. We've, we've, we've watched as he rehearsed the staff, throw it on the ground. It becomes a serpent. Pick it up. It becomes a staff again. We've, we've watched all of this. And God has given to Moses the words to say and the miracles to perform. God initiates every bit of this. The deliverance of God's people is God's idea. God's the one bringing this about. God initiates this relationship with Moses. But it's not just the initiation of the relationship that comes from God. Because you see in verses 21 and 22... Moses, when you get down to Egypt, here's what you're going to do. And here's what you're going to say. And here thou, here is, here's how this is going to go. Moses, Pharaoh isn't going to respond the way you might expect him to respond. I know, Moses, you think that because I'm sending you, you're going to get back there and it's going to be easy. You're going to walk into Pharaoh's office, knock on the door, open, come in, open the door, walk into Pharaoh. You find him there, you know, sitting there in his office, ruling over Egypt. And you're going to say, Yahweh, the covenant God of Israel, wants us all to leave. And you think he's going to say, okay, yeah, we've got some U-Hauls if you want to borrow those. I mean, you, you need, I've got a coupon code. You can, I mean, we, we give him them. We think there's this notion that, that it's all going to be easy. And God tells Moses, not that Pharaoh's not going to respond. I'm going to harden his heart. I'm going to cause, this is going to be a theme, by the way. We're not going to so much take it up this morning, but we'll see at the pattern of, of God actually hardening Pharaoh's heart so that he can't and won't respond to Moses' request. God initiates the relationship with Moses. God initiates the... He activates the free Israel sequence. He's the one that pushes the button and starts the process, starts the countdown. He's the one that gives Moses the exact words to say and the exact things to do, the miracles to perform when he gets there. God initiates all of this. And what we realize is that God's word governs every aspect of Moses' work. 
the deliverance of God's people comes because of God's decree and through God's decree. God comes to Moses. God's word comes to Moses. God uh, calls Moses. His word calls Moses. His word commissions him. His word instructs him. Every step of the way is governed by God's decree, by the edicts of the king of heaven and earth. Because even at some level, I would never come up with, here's how this is going to work. I'm going to walk into Moses' office, I mean Pharaoh's office. I'm going to throw this staff down and it's going to become a snake. This is going to be good. Y'all, y'all watched. Like, I wouldn't come up with that. Well, in part because I don't, if it has to do with snakes, I don't want any part of it, right? That's, so there's that. And I'm certainly not going to pick up a snake by its tail, assuming it's going to become a snake. God's word rules over every aspect of Moses' action. Freedom comes as a result of God's decree. That's not just true of Israel, right? That's not just true of Moses. That's not just true of Israel. That's true of us. Our freedom, our deliverance from bondage to sin, our freedom from slavery to sin comes as a result of God's decree. It's God's word that frees us from slavery to sin. He initiates the relationship. He calls us to himself. He uses his word to break the power of sin and unite us to Christ. That's Romans 10. That's what, that's what Paul writes when he says, well, it's the message of the gospel that brings salvation. That's why we need messengers of the gospel. Jesus doesn't tell you that the harvest is, is not ready and we've got way too many messengers. No, he tells you the, the harvest is ready. Pray that more messengers will be raised up. It's... It's God's word that frees us from sin. It's God's decree that delivers us from bondage to, to sin. Freedom comes by divine decree. But freedom also comes with bloodshed. I, um, I don't gamble much. I don't have anything to gamble with. I don't have anything to gamble with. So I'm not a gambling man. Um, if I were, I think probably one of the safest bets I could make would be that I would, I would bet on your reaction. You're, you're reading through the Bible in a year and, and there've been some hiccups in Genesis. There are a couple of chapters here and there that you're like, I don't know why this is even in the Bible. This is kind of weird, but my guess is you get to verses 24 to 26, and you scratch your head and you shrug your shoulders with a little bit of whatever and you keep on going. My guess is that that, that would be one of the safest bets that I could make. And, and I'm, I'm, there are questions galore about verses 24 to 26. And some of them 
we must let go unanswered. People smarter than I have, have spent a lot more time and a lot more ink uh, over these three verses than uh, I care to give it, which makes me nervous about uh, stepping out there with answers. However, I think I have answers. Um, a, a couple of things that need to be cleared up in these three verses. For example, Moses' name in the Hebrew is not in the passage. It's all first-person singular pronouns. Him, his. Uh, the only two names that actually appear are Yahweh and Zipporah. Uh, so Moses' name isn't in the Hebrew. They're, your English translators are making the assumption that that, that him or his is Moses. And um, that may be true. For that matter... Um, There's this use of bridegroom, so surely that points to Moses, but it's not exactly the case. There are are questions about uh, this passage. I don't know if you've ever been to a musical or not. You go to a Broadway musical, BBC or TPAC or something. You go see Mary Poppins. And before the play starts, the orchestra down in their little pit, they start playing an overture. Uh, And in that overture, you get snippets of all the songs that are in the play, that are in the musical. And, and, And part of the point is to say it's time to sit down and stop talking now. Part of the point is to introduce you so that as the play goes on, the the tunes, the songs are familiar to you. And you can kind of go, oh, I remember that. I remember. So when Spoonful of Sugar comes on, you, 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 I heard that in the overture. In the overture, they don't play the whole of, they don't play all of Spoonful of Sugar. They play just enough to whet your appetite. And then they move on to the next song and you, you're thinking, and if you know Mary Poppins, then the overture makes you excited for those scenes, those events when that comes up again. These verses are a bit of an overture. They, they, they introduce us to themes that are going to show up over and over again throughout the book of Exodus. And they're intended so that when you get there and you go, huh, this is familiar to me. I remember this from that weird passage back in Exodus 4. Or if you know Exodus, you read it here and you get excited for those scenes, those events that you know are coming later in the book of Exodus. It introduces the theme, for example, of the firstborn son. You notice in verse 23, 22, Israel is God's firstborn son. In verse 23, Pharaoh's firstborn son is in grave danger if he doesn't let God's firstborn son go free. In the very next scene at the Holiday Inn between Midian and Egypt, Moses' firstborn son is in danger of losing his life because he has not yet received the sign of God's covenant faithfulness, God's covenant promises in his flesh. And once again, a woman comes to the rescue. 
Yahweh, you remember, is God's uh, covenant name. And you see the all caps there in verse 24. The Lord met him and sought to put him to death. That him is either Moses or it's Gershom in all likelihood. And even then, you have to assume it's Gershom because he's the oldest. And you know there's more than one because we saw that back in verse 20. 19, yeah, 20. Yahweh shows up in this hotel room and he's prepared to put him to death. Presumably Moses for being disobedient to God's commands. Zipporah grabs a knife, circumcises Gershom, her their firstborn son, and touches that foreskin to his feet. Moses's or Gershom's. Feet might be a euphemism. And it's clear that whatever the case, whatever is going on in this passage, it's the circumcision of somebody. And it has to be Gershom because Moses would have been circumcised at eight days old back 80 years ago. It's clearly the act of circumcision that, that satisfies the wrath of God in this passage. God's prepared to, to pour out his, his wrath and, and judgment on Moses, on Gershom, on their family, and it's circumcision that 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 puts off that wrath, that satisfies the demands of the law. And the reality is, bridegroom in verse 26 is actually the same word that's used back in Exodus 3, verse 1, to describe Jethro, who's Moses' father-in-law. It's clearly not Moses' bridegroom. The point is the word is more general than, than bridegroom. It's any sort of covenant relative, mother-in-law, father-in-law, son-in-law. It's used for all of those different relationships in Scripture and and the picture then is that Zipporah is announcing this child who is my physical relative is now a covenant relative. He's now received the sign of the covenant in his flesh. You you remember circumcision. It's been a few years since we preached through Genesis, but, but back in Genesis 17, God introduces circumcision as the sign of the covenant. He promises to Abraham his presence, he promises a people, and he promises a place. And then he passes through those chopped up pieces of animal. Cut these animals in half, you pull the, the halves apart, it makes this bloody stomachs and kidneys and who knows lung who knows what else lying in this path and 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 the intent was that two people entering into a covenant would both pass through those pieces and and the aim is if i fail to do what i've promised i will do then let what has happened to these animals happen to me abraham didn't pass through those pieces God alone did. 
God staked his very existence, his very life on the fulfilling of his promises to Abraham. But he gave Abraham a sign, the sign of circumcision, the mark that, that separates Abraham and his people out from the world, that marked them out as belonging to God, that sets them apart as God's people, that makes them members of the covenant community. And Moses' son did not have that sign. Moses' son was outside of the covenant community. And so God appears to kill, ready to put him to death until blood is shed to satisfy divine justice, to satisfy God's wrath. As the Redeemer, as the the prophet of God going back to Egypt to deliver Israel, Moses had to be above reproach. And that means your children have to bear the sign of the covenant in their flesh. He was expected to keep the the covenant requirements that, that were given to Abraham and to his descendants. But it also reminds Moses that there is no forgiveness without the shedding of blood. You, you can't atone for sin without there being bloodshed somewhere. Okay, yes, that's written in Hebrews, and Hebrews wasn't written at the time that when, when Moses was 80 and, and on his way. But it's still the same. The concept is still the same. Without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. It's why there was a, a bloody sign in the Old Testament. It's why we don't have a bloody sign today. It's why baptism, a much cleaner sign, has replaced circumcision because the blood of Christ is sufficient. We don't need a bloody sign anymore for our covenant. You know, I can't help but notice Moses argued with God for a chapter and a half. All of Exodus 3 and the first half of Exodus 4, Moses enters into a debate with God. I mean, literally to the point of going, God, no, I'm not going to do it. You have to get Aaron to talk for me or you've got to figure out something. He literally stomps and pouts and says, no, to God, I'm not going to do it. And God was patient. His son's not circumcised. God's not so patient. Makes you wonder if we don't have it backwards. We have this notion that baptism is, eh, I mean, it's this thing we do. It's just a custom. It's just a sign. It's just a symbol. It doesn't really mean anything. It's not really a big deal. It's okay. I mean, plenty of people have been saved that were never baptized. I can only find one in the Bible, and he was on a cross at the moment of his profession of faith. But we sort of, hey, baptism, it doesn't really matter. It's not really that big. But you can't argue with God. If you, if you pour out 
your, your heart of, of fear and hesitance and, and uncertainty and disbelief and distrust to God, then I don't want to be anywhere near you because lightning is going to strike you. We have it backwards. Moses argues, and God is patient, unfaithful to apply the sign of the covenant to his son, the angel of death is hovering over his bed in the Holiday Inn between Midian and Egypt. Maybe we should consider the sign of the covenant more important at least than we do. For us, the sign has changed to baptism. The recipients don't change, believers and their children. But the importance never changes. Freedom comes at God's decree. Freedom comes with bloodshed. Freedom comes with a new family, a new a new body. And we won't belabor the last two points, to be honest with you. But notice what happens when Moses is on his way back. He gets up the next morning, checks out of his hotel, and he's heading back. Meanwhile, God has met with Aaron and said, look, I want you to head towards Moses because he's coming to you and you're going to go meet each other. And then when they get back, they get, when they get together, he tells Aaron everything. And then they go together to the elders of Israel. Israel was Presbyterian. You can laugh. I mean, I, I only partially tongue-in-cheek say that I preached, you know, the, the book of Philippians to First Pres in Philippi. It, it, I, I'm convinced it was a Presbyterian. That's the picture here. It's not like the concept of elders, uh, of an elder-led covenant community. That doesn't just appear out of nowhere in First Timothy 3. It's grounded in Israel. It's grounded in the Old Testament. It's grounded in the Old Covenant people. The, it never actually changes. But Moses returns and, and finds a new people. Okay, they're, they're his people. I mean, he's an Israelite. He's, he's a Hebrew. He's one of them. Of course, he was raised as an Egyptian, at least for the first 40 years of his life, by Pharaoh's daughter. There's a lot of Israelite people that would think he's not one of us. He's been in Midian. He's been basically a Midianite for the last 40 years, from age 40 to 80. And, and there are a lot of Israelites would say he's not one of us. But as a covenant community, those things fade. The, the things that, that would create animosity, the, the things that would create division, the things that would put up barriers between him and them disappear. Why? Because they all belong to the same covenant community. Moses needs Aaron. They need the elders. The Israelites need Moses and Aaron. They all need each other. That's a picture of the church. That's a picture of our need for one another. Freedom comes at God's decree. Freedom comes with bloodshed. Freedom comes with a new people. And then finally, freedom results in worship. Did you notice verse 31? They're not even out of Egypt yet. In fact, you're not, you're pretty sure at this point 
nobody's been to see Pharaoh. Moses comes back, meets Aaron halfway. They come back. They meet with the elders of Israel. They announce the preliminary emancipation proclamation. And what is their response? They believed and they worshipped. Makes sense, right? If our salvation is all of God's grace, if our deliverance, if our freedom is all an outworking of God's grace to us, a product, a consequence of His divine decree, a product, a consequence of Him shedding His Son's blood, blood on our behalf, if it's a product of all of God's grace, what can we claim for ourselves? It should drive us to worship. It should drive us to to praise Him for what He has done, which is only what He could have done and something we, none of us, could have done for ourselves. We wouldn't have come up with it. We wouldn't have been able to accomplish it. We never could have provided for our own freedom, our own deliverance. We have to look to someone else to provide that for us. And God has provided that someone else in His Son, Jesus Christ. That fuels our worship. That should drive us to worship. I mean, now, if, if, if you came up, if you accomplished your salvation, if you were just so good that you were perfectly obedient and never ever sinned, never told your mom and dad no, never disobeyed their commands, never did anything wrong, never stole anything you weren't supposed to steal from the workplace, never lied to a boss, never... You know, whatever. Then maybe you could praise yourself. But see, that's the point. We can do none of those things. The reality is, that's true of Lincoln's Emancipation Proclamation. Slaves needed someone else to speak for them, to decree their deliverance. And with that decree came their freedom. That's us. And that drives us to worship and praise and honor and glorify Him in every way. If our salvation is all of God's grace and we can claim zero credit for ourselves, then it should drive us to give Him all the honor, all the glory, that he deserves for doing what only he could do. The Israelites aren't even out of Egypt yet. The preliminary emancipation proclamation was enough to drive them to their knees to praise Yahweh, to praise their covenant-making, covenant-keeping God for fulfilling his part of the covenant. They're guaranteed to get out of Egypt because God has issued a decree that it would be so. And his word cannot fail. This is true of you. If you're here this morning and you're not trusting in Christ and him alone for your salvation, that promise is for you. You look to Jesus and his promise of deliverance cannot, can't possibly fail. 
if your hope and trust is in Christ. He's announced our freedom. He's declared our freedom from the penalty of sin for all who look to Jesus for salvation. His blood was shed so that we might be set free from the wrath and curse of God. Give to Him the praise, the honor, and glory for your deliverance. Let's pray together. Our great God and our King, and we thank You for uh, salvation that is all of Your grace and not by our works. It's all through the, the faithful obedience of uh, the Redeemer You've sent, uh, Your Son, Jesus Christ. It's all through the blood shed, uh, His blood shed on the cross to satisfy divine justice, to reconcile us to You. And so we pray that we would live lives of honor and glory and praise and worship to Christ our Redeemer. Would you grant us the grace even to that end? We pray in His holy name. Amen.